Welcome to the MSU Press Podcast, where we talk about university press publishing with some of the authors, editors, and publishers who make it happen from the campus of Michigan State University. On today's episode, we're joined by James D. Diamond to discuss his book, After the Bloodbath, Is Healing Possible in the Wake of Rampage Shootings? Thanks for tuning in. James Diamond's book, After the Bloodbath, examines the typical American reaction to the tragedy of rampage killings and the interplay between offenders and their families and victims and their families and an emerging and unreported trend, namely the desire for reconciliation and healing between families of rampage offenders and the families of their victims. In this work, Diamond draws on a distinct difference in how some American Indian communities treat rampage killers and their families to ask what the Western justice system might learn about restorative justice from other traditions. James Diamond has spent more than 25 years as a criminal lawyer with experiences both a state prosecutor and a criminal defense attorney. He's the former director of the Tribal Justice Clinic at James E. Rogers College of Law and professor of practice at the University of Arizona. James, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Hi, Kurt. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to talk about your book because I think one of the really interesting things that you bring up in the book is how difficult it is to have these conversations about rampage shootings and gun violence in America there's a sort of script we have where every time one of these things happens, we talk about how, what, what let it happen, what we could do to stop it from happening. And there's always a thread of that discussion about is now the right time to talk about this sort of thing happening and how we can prevent it. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a really, you know, difficult subject, uh, yet critically important. Uh, but you're right. Um, it's become way too common, and the responses have been, you know, way too uh, common and formula. Um, and it never seems like the right time to to talk about solutions, or to, or in my case, to talk about, you know, responses in the aftermath. Uh, so uh, I think, you know, this is as good a time as any. Yeah, I think even that's what I was going to say, thinking about here we all are sheltering now at this moment from global pandemic. It seems odd to return to one of these other major threads of, you know, um, trouble in our society and yet still appropriate and still totally relevant. Yeah, we've got to do we've got to do something, though, because, um, you know, the the incidents have not ceased. Um, It's just a question of time before there'll be another. So, uh, but uh, yeah, even in this difficult time, you know, if people are concentrating on their own health and well-being as they well should, but um, the, uh, the, the, what I believe to be the suicide epidemic, uh, which is what these mass shootings are, um, still is still out there. And so uh, we, we shouldn't turn our backs on, on subjects like this, uh, even at this time. Yeah, I agree. That's a good point. And I think that um, in the victims and there and the people who deal with these things in the wake of them that the media completely loses focus on after these things happen, they're all still out there um, dealing with the the traumas that they've experienced. What what drew you to researching rampage shootings? How did that interest develop? Well, that's a great question. Um, So I was a practicing criminal lawyer for 25 years, and um, I uh, decided to 
to study indigenous law, uh, tribal law, uh, and uh, indigenous human rights advocacy. And so I was I was in the middle of my doctoral studies at the University of Arizona at the College of Law, pursuing a uh, what's called an SJD, a doctoral degree. And I was um, taking classes in indigenous justice and tribal courts and human rights advocacy. And um, I was in between semesters and, and traveling back to the East Coast um, on, the, on the break, uh, the December break. Um, and I got off the airplane at John F. Kennedy uh, Airport and I was waiting for my, my baggage. And they had a they have a television screen at uh, baggage, uh, you know, in at JFK. And on the screen was the Newtown, Connecticut, uh, shooting live. I was and I was really quite blown away by that. Newtown, Connecticut, was one of the communities that was in my practice area. In fact, it was in my district when I was a prosecutor, and I I knew people there. I knew the prosecutor's office investigating. I knew you know I knew people involved. Um, and so I began studying that incident and the uh, responses to that incident, the cultural responses and the aftermath and the investigation. Uh, and I was quite troubled by several things uh, in Newtown that we can get into. But regardless, to answer your question, so I began to ask, I wonder if this anything like this had ever happened on an Indian reservation. I had never heard of any. Uh, and so I, I began researching and lo and behold, I found one. I found one in Minnesota uh, on the uh, Red Lake uh, reservation of the Ojibwe band of Chippewa Indians. And so uh, what I found when I started studying uh, that, and in fact, comparing the aftermath and responses uh, from Newtown, the Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting uh, to Red Lake was quite, quite revealing. And that's that's where the idea for the book came. Yeah. And I, I want to get to the indigenous resolutions and, the, and those kinds of traditions as we talk here. One thing I sure. wanted to go back to in your response, it made me think of a moment in your book that surprised me because I hadn't given it a lot of thought. I was in high school when Columbine happened. Um, and I don't recall seeing it live on the news, but I know that it was live on the news. And, and you talked about seeing the Newtown shooting in the media. Um, I wonder if, if we could think a little bit about that, because one of the things that you detail in the book is how much Columbine was a live event. They were interviewing students as they're coming out while yes. events are still in process and parents yes. are seeing it happen. Yes, yes, there, yes. It, 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 at Columbine, there you know, there was, it was covered live. It was broadcast, you know, in real time, uh, tragically. And there was, you know, there were things that were really, really upsetting to watch. Uh, there was a, you know, there were uh, signs being posted uh, by the students, you know, in, in the school, help us. Uh, there was a, there was a, a boy climbing out of a window trying to, trying to save his life. There was actually, so sadly, you know, a boy uh, laying deceased for hours and hours uh, on television. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's all very, very disturbing. Yeah. 
And I, I was thinking in contrast to the Red Lake incident, yeah, which didn't, which couldn't have received that kind of no, attention. no, no, no. Red Lake, um, the 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 tragedy on the Red Lake Reservation is largely unknown. Uh, yeah, and and you know, I I think it's the forgotten Columbine, um, and there are so many parallels with other shootings, and actually, really interesting things that that we can learn from the responses at Red Lake and the treatment uh, at, at Red Lake. Uh, but Red Lake received, outside of, of Minnesota, uh, it probably did receive some coverage in Minnesota, but outside of Minnesota, nobody's ever heard of it. Um, yeah. Maybe they have in, you know, in indigenous communities, they, they know about it. But uh, outside of Minnesota and indigenous communities, it's, it's completely unknown. And I, I think there are lots of reasons for that. Yeah, I wonder if you could start, if we could start by just sort of talking about the, the incident that happened. Could you just Red tell Lake? us a little bit, yeah, about what happened at Red Lake? Yeah, yeah. So so uh, without giving the name of the uh, shooter, the killer, because uh, I, I try, uh, although it's, you know, I, I use his name throughout the uh, book. When I do broadcasts, I try not to because I, I think that notoriety is part of what the shooters are looking for. And so let's just say there was a, there was a high school student. Um, he was uh, 17 years old and he uh, first um, went to his grandfather's house. His grandfather was a tribal police officer. Went to his grandfather's house. He took several uh, guns from his grandfather he then murdered his grandfather and his grandfather's girlfriend who were uh, who was there with him murdered uh, them first and then he he stole his grandfather's police car tribal police car went to the high school um, sh shot and killed a, a security guard uh, at the front door um, then started shooting up the you know the school he uh, he, he went, he found a, a classroom and I think it was actually, um, a study hall that was in progress and the door was locked. They were practicing, you know, safe school practices and the door was locked. Uh, he blasted his way through a big, uh, glass uh, window. He went in, he taunted the students. He shot a teacher, shot and killed a teacher. Um, he killed several other students in the study hall. Um, he went to shoot the uh, teacher, Missy Dodds, the uh, math teacher who was presiding over the study hall. His gun jammed. Uh, a, a football player uh, went to tackle him. Big, big guy, uh, Jeffrey May, went to tackle him uh, and uh, stab him with a, with a pencil. And uh, the shooter shot him in the face. Um, and... Uh, when he left the classroom where he engaged in a gunfight with police, went it back into the classroom and, and committed suicide with the gun. To the, it's, you know, it's 15 years since that incident in 2005. And to this day, uh, the, you know, the people who survived, like Missy Dodds, the student Jeffrey May, the students in the classroom, the rest of the students in the school who fled, uh, hid and fled, there's, today they're still suffering the wounds of, uh, of what they experienced. Just imagine the, the horror 
yeah. being in that classroom, you know, I think he asked one student, do you believe in God? And then shot him. Um, it's just, it's just, uh, terrible. Awful. Yeah. It's just awful. Terrible. Um, and, uh, and harrowing. And, and like I say, unheard of to most, uh, most Americans. Yeah. And it, and it was, so it was a total of, uh, nine people dead his yes. grandfather himself and then seven yes. students teachers and security workers at the yes school. yeah two uh two teachers the security guard uh and uh and seven students yeah and you mentioned that the similarities to newtown i mean the narrative is, well, is so similar take takes guns from the family exactly kills, kills the family member first yeah right and then goes to a school um uh, and, and so, uh, so very, very similar, uh, yet, yet to this day, Sandy Hook is, you know, is, uh, very well known and Red Lake not, um, uh, but well, I, did, I wonder, yeah, go ahead. I was going to say, I wonder if yeah. we could think about the similarities some more, because one of the things that I really got out of your book is something that I hadn't thought about at all. And that happened in both cases and also at Columbine and elsewhere, is there's also this immediate turn to now that the perpetrator has killed themselves, we start seeking justice somewhere else and communities begin to look to the parents and caretakers of these people um, to, to try in some way to resolve this or to see if those yeah. people can be blamed. And that happened both at Red Lake and at Newtown. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I, I, I think that, you know, as a as a as a criminal lawyer, I you know I have I have had lots of observations about the way law works well and and its failings. And I think in this case, the uh, the adversarial process where we you know square off uh, um, plaintiffs against defendants and victims against offenders, square off you know separated by walls of separation, uh, the adversarial process does not help. Um, you know, interestingly, in uh, at Red Lake, it you know there there was some litigation, but what happens is that lawyers get involved, and I would be the first one to advise a client to, to stop talking, don't say anything, don't give any statement to the police, don't don't talk on television, don't talk to victims, don't talk, be quiet, because your yeah, word advised silence. Advised right? silence. I talk about. Is the, is yeah. the phrase I, I use advice silence and because you know your words will be used against you in one way or another against your legal interests yet that doesn't necessarily mean it's in society's best interests for people to not be uh, talking um, we look to blame someone uh, society looks to blame someone if there's a criminal case to be brought against a, a family member they consider it you know at Newtown um, the brother of, uh, of the shooter was arrested that day by mistake. Um, you, you know, so here's this family dealing with this unbelievable, you know, uh, horribly, horrible incident, horrible tragedy. And, you know, their, their, their lives are turned upside down and, and people start blaming parents. People start blaming parents when the offender is a child you know or you know a teenager or a young adult they start blaming parents um, and if and then they look to um make arrests wherever possible which did happen at red lake uh, as well um very very interestingly uh 
the uh, son of the chairman of the tribe um, was arrested. Um, and it was, it's a juvenile case, and so the details are not public or known, and it would only be speculation to try to guess why. But he was arrested, and that definitely had ramifications. Uh, but that, you know, happens a lot. You know, you saw it in uh, Charlestown uh, when, you know, an individual was arrested for, you know, having knowledge that the that the tragedy was going to occur and not taking steps to prevent it. Uh, that might be what happened in Red Lake as well. But it, you know, these the, the legal uh, arrests, indictments, criminal cases um, tend to push people into silence. And that's, I, I think it's counterproductive uh, because I think one of the premises of the book is that tribal uh, people, indigenous peoples still do a good deal more interacting. And I think that the interactions are important toward, you know, people healing and, and, and getting the closure, not to overuse yeah. a phrase, but I think it's really important. And I think, I think that um, a, you know, arrests, civil lawsuits tend to hinder interaction um, so I'm, I'm, you know, I'm calling for a, you know, going back to having interactions and somehow integrating conversation uh, and uh, an engagement between offenders and their families or their families, um, victims and or their families, uh, getting back into interaction. I think that's how it all it used to be until we substituted uh, you know, first the crown prosecuting criminal cases against individuals, which later became the state, which is what we do now. Um, and we've taken victims and their families uh, out of the process. Uh, we, you know, made some steps in the last 20 years, 20, 30 years toward including them more, but certainly not a conversation. I think, I think that the conversation uh, and, a, and, a, and an engagement interaction uh, could be reintegrated into the criminal justice system and 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 utilize and i think it's an important change which wouldn't take away anything from the existing system but might add uh this important interaction yeah well especially in these cases where the perpetrator is so often as you point out in the book not around to be prosecuted you know if someone dies while this is happening seeking adversarial justice from them and their and their kin is a more difficult and complicated thing to even begin to imagine. Yeah, you're right, Kurt. Um, my, my view is that these mass shootings, you know, whether they're school shootings or workplace shootings or, you know, occurring at, you know, houses of worship, I, my view is that they're suicides, um, that, the, uh, the, 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 the that the killer um, intends to either uh, commit suicide or be killed, you know, uh, during the incident and that, you know, they should be looked at and studied uh, and considered in light of the, the, the terrible growing trend toward uh, suicide, and especially in, in um, young people. You know, these are all young men, um, largely young, but even the incidents that are middle-aged men, uh, it's all men. Yeah. Um, the, you know, the, you don't hear of uh, a school shooting involving a you know female shooter. It's all, it's all men, and it 
it needs to be examined and studied. We haven't done anywhere near enough study of this in incredibly important public health crisis. Yeah. I, you know, I'm thinking about it in terms of who the perpetrators are. It does lead me to, you know, your your argument is, is I think, pretty radical, like the idea that we need to introduce some restorative justice thinking into how we deal with the aftermath of these shootings. We need to think about ways of um, practicing forgiveness in the wake of these kinds of things. I think that that's really hard to sell culturally because the immediate knee-jerk response is, well, are you saying that the perpetrator is some kind of victim too? And you even talk about that a little bit in the book, this feeling like, how do we talk about forgiveness when the person responsible is so clearly responsible and has so clearly done something so awful? Could you say a little bit about you know, what restorative justice means in your context yeah. and like how you get to forgiveness? Yeah. Well, sure. Well, first, um, you know, responses to murder and healing in general, uh, how a person deals with tragedy, it's an individualized process. And, you know, I don't begin to want to tell anyone how they should respond when they've lost a child, a parent, a loved one. Um, uh, but there, these are, you know, some some ideas, and um, I found that as time goes on, uh, and and not immediately after, and, and and by the way, I certainly understand that some of the emotions that are going to be expressed by victims are going to be anger, um, without a doubt. But one of the things that I've learned is that. In all murder cases, uh, and I, you know, I prosecuted and defended uh, them. Um, people want to know why. You know, victims want to know why. Why? You know, why? They want to know how. How did this happen? And and they're crying out for a conversation. Restorative justice, you know, you know, says that we can restore social bonds that have been cut, you know, that have been severed uh, after a tragedy like this. Social bonds, relationships have been severed. And restorative justice says that you can restore those bonds or you move toward restoring those bonds. Um, and that healing is important, critical. Um, it, tur it turns out that forgiveness is an important component theoretically um, in the healing process. And um, it's difficult as it is, you know, we have a, we have a, uh, a long spiritual connection to forgiveness. Forgiveness is very, is very spiritual. I use the word spiritual rather than religious, but you can use that word as well. Spiritual, I think, is a better word when talking about indigenous peoples. But, you know, we have um, uh, traditions in, among indigenous communities uh, of of this you know restoration of social bonds you know we've got in this country we've got over 500 American Indian tribes Native American tribes that are recognized and way more that are not quote unquote recognized by the federal government so we've got a lot of uh, you know many many communities 
and over 200 uh, tribal court systems in this country. And um, you see many of them have a restorative justice uh, programs. Uh, there's one in particular that's uh, referred to as the peacemaking courts. Um, and that comes out of the Navajo Nation in, uh, in, the, uh, in the northern corner of uh, Arizona, New Mexico, Utah. The Navajo Nation actually uh, about 30 years ago um, uh, integrated their, their traditions, uh, their traditions of meeting and talking things out into the court system and have a whole division where they will divert a case out of the courts to peacemaking. Um, and the peacemaking involves the community, it involves community leaders, it involves spiritual leaders, and they sit around in a circle and talk things out and may have several sessions until they, you know, can come to some resolution. So uh, that has spread, uh, and is a, it's an indigenous tradition. Navajo, the Navajo are not nearly the only ones, but there are, you know, the back of you know, my book, I have an appendix with the list of tribal courts that have some sort of peacemaking program. It's quite popular. Um, and it, you know, like I say, it's a, it's going back to a way of dealing with crisis that, you know, gets people talking as opposed to squaring off into their separate uh, corners of a, of a courtroom, not speaking to one another, not allowed to speak to one another, and certainly yeah. not inviting outside participants in. Yeah. I wonder if we could pursue that a little further by returning to the Red Lake example, sure. because where there are similarities between what happened at Red Lake and Newtown yeah. and Columbine and other places, yeah. some of the differences arrive from the kinds of indigenous traditions you're talking about. So well, in the absolutely. wake of that shooting, how did the community heal? Well, what was really interesting at Red Lake was the, uh, you know, the grandfather uh, uh, he's called Dash, was his nickname, Lucier. Um, he wasn't blamed in any way by, you didn't hear anyone blaming him for the incident, uh, you know, as opposed to uh, in Newtown, where the mother, the mother in Newtown was really treated as an accomplice. In fact, wasn't counted when the president came to uh, Newtown, you know, and the governor, when they rang the bells, put up the angels, they never counted the mother, which was what bothered me is how I got started on doing the book. At Red Lake, they, they, they never turned their back on the family of the shooter. Uh, they never turned their back on the grandfather. They never, never turned their, they never turned their back on the shooter himself. Mm. Um, whatever, you know, those that were angry at him, well, I'm sure they were, but, but they considered what led up to the crisis. And he, he was, you know, he had a very, very difficult life, and they considered that. Um, but what, what really, really uh, was quite startling to me was that the tribe voted to include the family of the shooter in distributing victims' compensation funds and gave, gave him a share for the family to use for his burial. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's, um, that's radical, of. right? I mean, in, unheard of. Yeah. Never heard of it. I'd never seen it anywhere else. No. Um, it was not, you know, it was, and, it was and controversial, the right? There was people who were it was controversial. There are, there are those that were upset by that, but it was accepted. Uh, and the council voted unanimously 
to do it. But it's, it, it makes a lot of sense if you think about it. And what they, what they said was, what the community members said was, you know, he's someone's cousin. He's somebody's uncle. Um, and his life should not be judged by that one day. Uh, and what led up to it should be considered. And in fact, you know, there were a lot of warning signs. Yeah. Uh, with with the shooter, there are always warning signs, but there were a lot of warning signs, and they they didn't so they didn't turn their back on him. His funeral uh, was you know conducted like the rest of the victims, um, and was very very well attended. The uh, grandfather's funeral was had a massive crowd. Um, there were mourning rituals at Red Lake, traditional Ojibwe mourning rituals that occurred. And they occurred for him as well. Um, so they never turned their back on him, which I think is, is really quite different. Um, and, it, you know, it's a tight-knit community. Um, people knew him. They knew the grandfather. He was really well-known. Uh, and they didn't blame him, and they didn't turn their back on him. They didn't turn their back on the family. And, and what, it's interesting, you know, you talk about the family of a mass shooter. Um, think about... And, and I know people people don't always agree with this, but think about what they're going through. So their child is now deceased also, and and the whole world is focused, you know, coming down on their shoulders. The police are turning their lives upside down, you know, going through their house, seizing everything in the house. They're they're they're, they're experiencing they're mourning themselves, um, and then to be vilified and demonized uh, by the community. I think is unfortunate. And so I, I, it's one of the things I, I call for in the book in my recommendations. I have several recommendations. And one is, in, you know, an end to demonizing the family. Yeah. Yeah. I've got four kids. Uh, and, um, you know, do I know what's, what's in their closets at all times? What was in their backpacks at all times? What they were watching online all the time? I mean, you hope that people do. And I know that we all should do a better job of it, but, yeah. It's a pretty darn hard job, and uh, and and so so to, to experience, think about what they're experiencing, on, on, you know, to then to then ostracize them and treat them as pariahs, I think is wrong. Yeah, uh, you're listening to the MSU Press podcast. I'm here with James D. Diamond, author of After the Bloodbath: Is Healing Possible in the Wake of Rampage Shootings? You know, I've been thinking about something that you say in the book that that a rampage shooting is a is a crime against society itself. It's attack. It's an attack on the the whole structure that oppresses the person who carries it out, or is is felt like it oppresses that person. And it's a lashing out at a school or a church, those kinds of things. And um, we've been talking about healing after these things, and it is. It, it occurred to me that the indigenous traditions that you point to. They, they treat that healing as the responsibility of society. They say the whole of this society has been a victim of this and we are all going to uh, band together to try to resolve it in some way, in a way that the adversarial system kind of does not. Does that seem yeah. like a reasonable yeah. formulation? Yeah, that's a, yes. I mean, that's a, that's a great observation um, because they, you know, so typically, you know, mass shooting, has a, a random uh, target. It's not a you know an intentional murder of a selected target. It's a it's a random 
you know, selection. Uh, you know, if you think about a, you know, a theater, uh, church, or a school, it's, you know, it's just a, you know, it's it's the system itself. It's the, you know, it's just the location, you know, can differ uh, and change, and and you know, but it is a, a lashing out and an anger and a resentment and maybe even a hatred. Um, but you're right, and you know, in, indigenous peoples look at the world a little more holistically, um, and they, you know, that I talk about uh, some traditions in in the book, and the Cheyenne uh, is just a great example uh the cheyenne uh people um felt like there was a uh, a corrosion uh in in the community and even even an odor uh and that and that the the community needed to heal um and that when the community healed um the the offender could be you know um invited back in that the that the they felt that the uh, the offense needed to be taken out of the offender rather than the offender, you know, put in a prison and removed from, from the community. Uh, and so, but they look at the world more holistically, interrelated uh, creatures, whether it's animals, plants, the earth, um, all related. And so uh, there is a community need for uh for a resolution as well. You're absolutely right. I, I wonder if we could take that a step further because the book ends with some recommendations for how we might improve the justice system around these issues. What what are kind of the couple of takeaways that, that you think can be reasonably adapted to the system as it is now? Obviously, it's going to be difficult to, you know, throw overthrow the whole thing, but what are some things that could happen? Well, I think the most important uh, one is to integrate this um, this this converse, a conversation between uh, victims or their families and offenders or their or their families um, uh, a conversation you know with a facilitator uh, where you put people in the same room uh, and and have them interact and and have the expression of emotion whether it's anger. Uh, the, the questioning of how and why, um, and have these conversations and integrate that into the criminal justice system. And it doesn't, it's not something that should happen right away after an incident. It should be some years later after maybe some mental health treatment for everyone involved, um, and a, a professional facilitator and get the lawyers out of the process. Um, that's the, that's the, most significant recommendation I make. Uh, the demonization we talked about of uh, families. I also uh, think that, you know, as, as someone who spent uh, 25 years in criminal courts, um, we don't receive any training at all in any of the skills that would help us participate in, in a healing process in the aftermath of crime. Uh, we're taught to be adversaries. We, you know, we're taught to cross-examine. We're taught to examine. Uh, we're, you know, we don't have, we're not taught uh, skills of empathy, counseling, uh, uh, forgiveness, healing. And so I think that law schools need to make mental health in general more of a priority. But certainly these sorts of skills. Otherwise, you know, prosecutors, and I was one, by the way, or, you know, judges, um, defense lawyers uh, are ill-prepared 
uh, uh, for participating uh, in that kind of a process. Those are the three most significant recommendations I make. Fourth one is perhaps look at the definition of victim so that what happened at Red Lake um, is possible so that you can give compensation to first responders, say, um, who, are not, who are not entitled to compensation now. Uh, but just think about, you know, someone, think about the police officer walking into uh, that Red Lake classroom. And uh, they're never going to be the same again. Uh, people that I talk to who, who, who have been in, in one of those classrooms, um, they're never going to be the same and they're, they're scarred forever. So consider them in the definition of victims. Change the definition of victims for victim compensation. And that's the fourth recommendation I make. Yeah, I mean, the, it, it is, I think, uh, one of the interesting things about your book is how how much broader we have to think about these situations, you know, that it's not just the, the, the number of people who died, the person who committed it, but the parents, the, the people who were there, the first responders, as you say. Yeah, I think, the, I think, I think the book is, is pretty unique. Um, I know I'm biased, but um, I don't, you know, up until uh, within the last few months, there weren't any books at all uh, or any research at all. I don't think there's any research, on the aftermath of mass shootings at all. Um, the recent, I think, you know, about the same time my book came out as a book from, with some, you know, short um, narratives from, from uh, people affected by uh, mass shootings, but there's no research uh, on the subject and certainly no one has looked at it uh, with an indi the, uh, the, the uh, background of indigenous justice. It's fairly unique. And I think that, you know, in American Indians in general are something that people should, you know, think about a little bit more, um, mass shootings a lot more, um, and, uh, and, the, and the aftermath of heinous crime a lot more. Yeah. I mean, it, it never ceases to amaze me the degree to which these things that seem to happen with ever-increasing frequency are so poorly understood and even the kind of basic data about how often they happen, where do the weapons come from, all of that sort of stuff is just kind of glossed over as we rehearse the narrative of you can't take my guns away, we're going to take your guns away, that kind of thing. Unfortunately, um, that topic looms large and, uh, you know, even, even Congress uh, took away uh, any funding toward research in this area um, several years ago, something called the Dickey Amendment, yeah. which they just put a little bit of money in. But no, 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 no. We, we, um, even the even the mass shootings, um, you know, where the shooter has uh, the killer has survived, and someone talks to them. The explanations for you know why they did what they did is is rather incomplete and 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 unsatisfactory. Um, uh, they really can't explain it outside of saying, you know, that people were mean to them um, in their life, in their school, in their church, uh, at work. Um, you really can't explain it, and we know nothing. Yeah, we have no understanding. Uh, of it and and we need to yeah 
I think what you what you take away from the what you've learned about indigenous justice traditions is so valuable and it makes such a useful contribution to the way that we think about this stuff. I wonder if you could say just a little bit about how how do we, you know, as a culture of largely, you know, white people with a Anglo-American justice system, how do we benefit from what we can learn from those traditions without just simply reappropriating and erasing you know, the place that they come from? Yeah, that's a very, very interesting and hard question um, because even something like peacemaking, um, you know, it's pretty hard to replicate uh, in a community because because peacemaking does have a, you know, a spiritual uh, aspect to it. Uh, it. So it's, you know, it's hard to uh, replicate um, and, and you need to be cautious. I also think that you need to be cautious about over romanticizing indigenous justice um, because, you know, certainly there were examples of, of communities that, you know, punished and punished severely. Um, so that you need to be cautious that way as well. But I would invite, I think invite um, indigenous people, you know, to, to participate in, you know, their thoughts about uh, creating, um, creating restorative justice systems. It's, you know, there are places that are doing it um, in, in Brooklyn, New York, they have a, a peacemaking um, uh, process. I've seen it in, in other communities. Um, certainly, you know, the dialogue, the, the post-crime uh, dialogue, the victim offender mediation that occurs, um, you know, can certainly be uh, adapted to other communities, but it is uh, something to be cautious about and to proceed with caution. Now, sadly, you know, American Indians are the forgotten Americans. Uh, you, you know, people think of them in stereotypical uh, fashion from, you know, something, you know, occurring, you know, in the, in the way back uh, history of the United States and have you know, very you know, terrible stereotypical understandings. Um, and you know, it's really, really unfortunate. And it's, it's a, just an unfortunate history of, of badly treating, you know, the indigenous population in this country. And so I think, you know, talking about Red Lake and the, and the forgotten uh, school shooting you know, is a perfect example of it. Um, uh, Without a doubt, nobody's ever heard of it outside of Minnesota. Um, but there are several reasons for it. Um, and one reason is that that, that was the uh, community's uh, desire. The community, um, it's, it's a very unusual um, tribe in that it's quite closed uh, and, and it's not open to uh, non-Indians living there uh, or owning land. Um, so it's quite closed and quite separate from other tribal communities as well. And so they, they basically closed the gates um, to deal with the crisis in their own way and privately uh, and traditionally. And so that was desired there. Uh, but I think I think there's an element of racism in it. Um, I hate to say, 
uh, that, you know, a lack of respect for indigenous peoples, um, perhaps a discrimination uh, against indigenous peoples. And I think that, um, you, you know, it, it just the community there didn't resemble um, communities like Aurora, Colorado, or Newtown, Connecticut is, you know, white, basically, uh, but just didn't resemble an American Indian reservation. So I think, I think there's some element of racism there, I really do, combined with the fact that the, you know, the tribe did not, did not want um, publicity or notoriety, they didn't want to be known for, you know, a mass shooting. Um, and, uh, and I can understand that, um, you know, listen, um, what happens after these tragedies, you know, if you, as opposed to what happened in Red Lake is that, you know, you have a shooting and the, the international media converges on the community. And I've even, I've even spoken to, um, victims, families where, you know, where national network television crews walked right into their houses while they were mourning. You know, the afternoon after they walked in television with cameras running. Yeah, awful. So I can understand why at Red Lake, they didn't want that. And they wanted, you know, to, you know, to, uh, to restore some, some dignity uh, to their, to their traditional um, memorial proceedings. Even there, it's, you know, it's not a good idea to generalize um, because every community is different and you can, you can go, you know, from the, from the Navajo nation to the Hopi nation, you know, on one road and, and have completely different traditions, customs, orientation as well. So, but it's, it's something worth thinking about and something uh, worth talking about. And I, and what my biggest hope is that we get people talking to one another again. Yeah. I think that's a really good place to leave it. We've just about used up our time. Uh, before we go, I want to say thank you so much, James, for joining us today. Uh, it's been really um, compelling and informative to read your book and to think about you know, how we might differently respond to these tragedies. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Kurt. James Diamond's book, After the Bloodbath, Is Healing Possible in the Wake of Rampage Shootings, is available at msupress.org and other fine booksellers. You can find him online at jamesdiamond.com. We'll put a link to the website in the podcast description. And you can connect with the press on Facebook and at MSU Press on Twitter. You can also find me on Twitter at Kurt Milb. MSU Press Podcast is a joint production of the MSU Press and the College of Arts and Letters at Michigan State University. Thanks to Daniel Trago, Medita Bos, Dante Smith, Kyleen Cave, and the team at MSU Press. Our theme music is Coffee by Cambo. Thank you all so much for listening and never give up on books. <laughs> <laughs>